Well, this morning we're going to uh, talk about life, liturgy, and a limp. And uh, any good message has got to have, you know, three, uh, three letters in a row of something. Uh, that's that's kind of the key to a great title for a message is three M's or three L's or three P's. So it's three L's today. And uh, there's, a, there's a passage in Romans uh, chapter 12 and uh, verse 1 where Paul really admonishes uh, believers to uh, present ourselves to God, to sacrifice our bodies, to give God all of us. And uh, this, he said, is our reasonable worship or service to the Lord. And that word service is actually uh, where we get the English word liturgy. It's liturgia. And, and so there's this liturgic service that we bring to God. And those of us that kind of maybe have grown up in more of a traditional uh, church, maybe you grew up Catholic or maybe Episcopalian or Lutheran, or, uh, and, and then some of you that have been a part of our community here for a length of time, you kind of know what liturgy is in a public worship sense in, in our space here. Uh, you know, Liturgy is uh, literally defined as the work of the people, the, the work of God's people together. And so when we take the Eucharist, we're doing it together. When we declare the creed, we do it together. When we pray, often we'll uh, pray together. But it can be much more than that. It can be a, in fact, it is much more than that, that we can be liturgic in our, uh, our lives, that there's a, a liturgy that we can live out, the work of our uh, heart and our hands in this world that we can bring liturgy uh, into our world. In fact, the original uh, uh, name, uh, liturgy, was was not actually a, a Christian origin. It started in early Rome where uh, wealthy people uh, would would have uh, uh, maybe great amounts of uh, wealth and they would they would commit to build maybe a temple or they'd commit to build, uh, you know, a, a well or they would uh, do something that was for the common good of Rome or for the common good of a city. And they called that liturgy, that you were giving beyond yourself for something that does not benefit you directly. And then it began to be also translated that if you served in Rome, you may not have been actually giving monetary funds, but if you served and gave of your time and energy to the good of Rome, again, it was liturgical. That was your liturgy. And so the church began to take on this word to uh, bring meaning to our work and service to the Lord, that it was unselfish service, that when we give of our lives and our treasure and our time and our efforts to God, and we do it uh, for the common good, and we do it together, that that would be a a liturgy. And so we bring a liturgy to God literally in our daily lives, not just as we gather uh, in our public space. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, uh, Paul goes into this, this word work. When we talk about uh, the, the work of the people, the, the service of the people, he talks about this word work. And I want you to see some. This is a, a little bit of a controversial scripture. There's a lot of debate on what this actually means, but we'll kind of get into it, and I think uh, we'll see some things that, that may be helpful. So verse 12 says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Of course, it doesn't mean that we fear God in the sense of we're, we're you know, afraid of him. He's an angry person. He's hateful. But, but it, it means to work out our salvation with a sense of humility, with a, with a deep sense of reverence and awe. And it goes on, for it is God who works in you to will and to do and act out in order to fulfill his good pleasure, to do his good pleasure, his good purpose. 
And so there's this, this process where it says that we need to work out our salvation. Now, this is counterintuitive to a lot of us that grew up in the church because we've been taught, rightly so, that salvation is a free gift, that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, that we can't work hard enough, we can't be good enough, we can't be moral enough to ever deserve this gift of being saved and being redeemed and having God pay for our sins, that it is truly a gift of God's grace that we receive by putting our faith in him. And yet it says, work it out. But notice it doesn't say, work for your salvation. It's not an earning process, but it's a gift that you begin to work out into your life. I think one of the best ways I could possibly describe that is I am a, uh, some of you know, I'm a Canadian, and uh, I, I grew up in Canada. I was born in Canada, and I've got my Canadian passport here, and uh, it's, it's my citizenship. It's, it's, it's where I was born, and yet I haven't lived there for a long, long time. In fact, I've lived in the United States longer than I lived in Canada, so I'm actually probably more like an American than I am like a Canadian, but I still have my Canadian citizenship, and so I'm Canadian, but I'm really not living in the kingdom of Canada. I'm really not enjoying the benefits that there are in Canada. And there are some benefits. They have these, these beautiful mountains, these majestic Rockies that you can hike and ski in. And I kind of miss those Rockies. I like to go back every now and then and visit and go through the mountains and, and ski. And there's, there's other stuff. You know, we have beavers and elk and mooses. And uh, cool animals and polar bears and stuff that you don't see in Oklahoma. There's, there's neat things like that. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Canadian bacon. And, uh, and there's free health care. Now, you might have to wait six months to see a doctor, but it's free if you can stay alive until you get in. And, uh, and if you don't mind paying the 50% tax bracket in order to have that health care. So there's, there's different things. But, 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 you know, I'm not working out my Canadianship because I'm not there. I'm not enjoying all of it. I'm not there. I'm not a part of the process. I'm not, not a part of really bringing common good to Canada, even, even though I have the documentation, even though I have the rights, even though I have the, the blessing of citizenship. And I didn't earn this citizenship. I didn't work for it. My mom, who's sitting right over there, gave birth to me, and all I did is come out, and I was pronounced Canadian. That's it. No test, no earning. It was a gift of citizenship, and that's how our salvation works. We have received this free gift of salvation, but yet there is a process of allowing God to work deep in our soul, to work out the goodness and the blessing and the common good of really being saved. And salvation is so much more than just heaven. So often in the evangelical culture, we think, oh, I'm saved, so I'm going to heaven. And there is obviously that future salvation, that, that time where God will make all things right and we'll be in his heaven and we'll live forever in eternity with him. But there's also a present day salvation. The word aptly uh, is defined as, as, as delivering us, making us whole, healing us, making us well that there's a wholeness that can begin to come into our lives that as salvation begins to emerge in us through the Scripture and through the Holy Spirit that literally we're being more and more saved every day. That God is saving more and more of our soul and our mind and our heart and our life and bringing more of a liturgical lifestyle where we're bringing common good everywhere that we go. And so it's a wonderful gift. 
And I want to kind of walk you through a man who really needed to get saved. (laughs) A man who had to work out the saving of his life. And he's in the Old Testament. We'll start with uh, this man. We'll put him up on the screen. And you know, I don't know about you, but there's times where I get into the scripture and I begin to read these stories, especially in the Old Testament, and I start to get confused on who begat who and who was with who and whose father was that. And, and, and so I, I just thought I'm going to make it as simple as I can, mainly for me uh, today as I speak, but maybe this will help you too. So there's this guy named Abraham. We probably, most of us know him as the father of our faith and God uh, called him out and, and, and uh, appointed him to be the father of many nations. And then uh, there's this son that he had named Isaac. And so Isaac was born. And then Isaac had uh, two sons. And these two sons were Jacob and Esau. And so there's kind of, uh, you know, uh, Esau and Jacob have a grandfather, Abraham, and have this father, uh, Isaac. And so they're two very different sons. Jacob's uh, Jacob's kind of a, a normal kid, you know, that doesn't say that he was really that distinct in any way other than his name. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Esau, now Esau was described as this great, big, husky, burly hunter of a man, you know, just a strong man and not afraid of anything. And, and then it, it says that he had, he had red hair all over him, like not just a beard, but, you know, and his shoulders and his back and his chest. And, and I mean, he's just a red-haired, big, burly man. I mean, this guy was like a, a buff Elmo, if you will. I mean, just this huge, big, red-looking guy. And, and so here is Esau and Jacob. And, 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 and Jacob is given this name. Jacob is given this name, and the name Jacob literally is translated or is defined as deceiver. <laughs> deceiver. Can you imagine your parents? You know, you are a deceiver. <laughs> Welcome to your future. Now, if you have the name Jacob, don't worry, because it's one of the most common names. Two years ago, it was the number one name in America given to boys. So don't worry. If you got that name, you're not a deceiver. You're not going to be a deceiver, and you're not going to have the outcome that Jacob had, hopefully. Uh, but but <laughs> you're not going to walk with a limp the rest of your life. But, uh, but our, our names on some level do define us, and they really define people in the Old Testament, because when you name somebody, you thought deeply about what that name meant. There was a, a depth of what does this name mean? And for some reason, his parents chose to name him Deceiver. Think about your name. Think about the name you were given. Think about maybe other names that you've kind of taken on through your life, you know? We all have names, and we some ways identify with names or even with nicknames. You know, uh, sometimes our nicknames are pretty common. They're not unusual. You know, if you might be shortened from Lucas to Luke or something like that. Uh, When I was, uh, you know, we were raising our boys, I had uh, uh, Jeremy. Well, his nickname was always Bub, and he was the furthest thing from Bub. He, You know, Bub is usually, hey, you know, just kind of good old boy, and and Jeremy was the most, you know, nerdy, uh, kind of, you know, intellectual and, you know, reader, but he was not a bub, but we called him bub and it just stuck with him. Uh, my middle son's name is Dylan. Uh, we called him Dill Pickle. He was really thankful for that name. Uh, 
Pickle. And then Brock was B-Rock. We called him uh, B-Rock. So they all had their little nickname. Probably your kids have nicknames. I know, you know, uh, when we were growing up with my siblings, Jason, my, my uh, brother, they, they just called him Jace. We just called him Jace. And then, and then Luann, my sister, we, you know, just called her Lou. Uh, and then, of course, me, Blaine, everyone just called me Blah. So, uh, we, you know, we all had kind of our names. But probably uh, we, can, we can think back to times that maybe we had other names. Maybe we named ourselves sometimes. I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever been in a place where you just did something and it really was really bad? And you just said, oh, you are so stupid. You are so stupid. There was a time in my life where I was so far from where I needed to be with God. I was so disappointed in myself. I used to look in the mirror and just say, I hate you. I hate you. Maybe you had friends growing up or maybe not so friendly friends that called you names based on what you looked like or what your body weight was or what your nose looked like or maybe how unathletic you were, how unintelligent you were. We kind of take on those names. Sometimes they're good names. I remember I, uh, in high school, they called me Big B. I kind of liked that name because I was so short. But one guy just one day started calling me, hey, Big B, and everyone just kind of picked that up, and I kind of liked that. That made me feel good. But when I was in elementary school, someone gave me the name Albino one day because I had pure white hair. It was so white, and one kid started calling me Albino, and it swept through the whole school. Pretty soon, everyone was calling me Albino. I didn't even know what one was. I went home. I looked it up, and I thought, oh, my gosh. It's the ugliest creature I've ever seen, an albino. And I began to just think, oh, you know, I'm different from the rest. I'm not as pretty. I'm not as good looking. I, you know, I just, it began to affect me. Names affect us. And identity, as we kind of take it in, as it's called out of us, it affects us. It's powerful. I was in a meeting one day with uh, our, uh, this years and years and years ago with a, uh, in, a, in a ministry, and I was with a, a, a ministry team of about eight or nine peers that were working together, and then our ministry leader was there. And, and the week before, I was in charge of our uh, youth outreach, and I had done this youth outreach where we were engaged in reaching out to the community, picking up kids, and bringing kids in from different parts of the rougher areas of the city we lived in at that time. And and uh, our goal was to, you know, kind of try to reach 500 students and to share the gospel and see kids come to Christ. And we were able to do that. We had, we had over 500 kids came, and we gave a, an opportunity for young people to respond and, and uh, receive Christ. And many of them responded, and it was, it was good. And obviously, because we were bringing some rough kids in, there were things that weren't so good. I mean, there were kids that were cussing, and that was just because that's what they did, and that's where they came from. And we had one bus that we used for pickup, and a kid broke a window, and that's kind of what, you know, kids do when, <laughs> when they get together and there wasn't a lot of supervision. You know, I mean, we just, we kind of, you know, we had some things go wrong, and I remember being in that meeting with, uh, with that staff and the ministry leader getting up, and, and he'd heard reports of more of the bad stuff than the good stuff, and he, he looked at me in front of all of my peers, and he said, that was a failure. I heard about some of the language of these kids, and I heard about that bus window. That was a failure. And I can't tell you how devastated I was. I felt like he looked into my eyes and said, you are a failure. 
And I remember going home and just being consumed with this shame and this pain and this hurt. And, and I remember over the next several days, my mouth just began to dry up. I couldn't stop it. It began to affect the chemistry of my body. And I began to have stress and my nerves and my heart was racing. And there was fear. And I was just shocked at how those words affected my soul. Words affect us. Names and identities that we take on ourselves or maybe somebody else delivers in some way into our life affect us. And on some level, Jacob was affected by this name. He, uh, he began to deceive. He began to lie. He began to manipulate. He began to take shortcuts. One day he went into his brother Esau and he stole and deceived him out of his birthright. And then we see a, a second time where he goes to his father. And in the custom of Israel at that time, the father would always pass on the blessing in his old age to his oldest son. And it was a, an extraordinary thing to be the oldest son and receive that blessing and that inheritance. And so as he's blessing his oldest son, and part of the blessing was you got double the inheritance that, than any of your other children got. So he's ready to pass on that blessing. You know what Jacob did? He deceived his father. He went in there and he put hair uh, with fur all over his arms and he lowered his voice and he pretended he was Esau because his father was nearly blind. He could hardly see. And he went in there and his father said, who this is, is this? It's Esau. And I said, I brought you some meat to eat. And he passed him the meat and he felt his arms and he said, oh, Esau, you are blessed. And he pronounced the father's blessing and the inheritance upon this man and not knowing that it was Jacob. And Jacob rushed out with the blessing. And we pick up in verse number 30 of Genesis 27, and we see all of a sudden, now Esau shows up. It says, after Isaac finished blessing him, Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting, and he too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And his father Isaac asked him, well, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently, and he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. In other words, I can't take it back. And Esau, when he heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me. Bless me too, my father. But he said, your, your brother came deceitfully and he took your blessing. And Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He is a deceiver. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. And he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And the answer was no. So here's Jacob, and he's starting on this road that is perpetuating itself into deception. And I want to come back, and as we think about that, I want to think about this word liturgical. One of the questions I asked about three or four weeks ago as I was thinking about this message is, what is the opposite? If liturgical is the work of the people, the service of God's people, what is the opposite of liturgical? 
what would the opposite be of a liturgical life? Anyone care to take a shot? We, we had Saturday night, four or five people take, take a shot and had some great answers. Um, nine o'clock had a few, hoping maybe 11 o'clock has some thoughts. What would be the opposite? Yeah. Selfish. That's a good answer. What else? Slothful. Good, Jim. Rebellion. Good. Anyone else? So, Lori last night, she said, uh, anti-liturgical. <laughs> That's smart. That's really good. <laughs> Very sharp, honey. So, so here's, here's what I, I'm going to suggest. And this isn't necessarily right. This is just my suggestion, because all of those make sense. Uh, how about this? Theatrical. If liturgical is a work and participation of all of God's people, maybe the opposite is the theatrical, where we have a few on a stage doing their parts and everyone else spectating. On some level, we've become a little bit of a theatrical church. Not that pastors are playing parts or that they're, you know, hypocrites. I don't want to infer that, but that we've got just a few kind of playing and doing and participating and then a lot of watching and a lot of spectating. And that's why living a liturgical life is so amazing because we get to live this faith out. We get to live out the life of God each and every day. And so what we don't want is to uh, kind of take that model and develop into maybe a, a theatrical lifestyle where we kind of live that life in certain places and spaces, but we're not living into our faith each day. And that's kind of what was happening with Jacob. He was kind of cutting corners. He was kind of living a theatrical life. He wasn't really being true to himself and true to God. And because of that, it put him on the run. He finally realized that if he stayed around with, with uh, his father and with his brother Esau, that he was going to die. He was going to be in trouble. And so he left with his inheritance, and he took off, and he ran to the land of Laban. Now, Laban was his uncle. And as he got there to meet Laban, Laban said, I want to put you to work. I want to give you an opportunity to serve in my land, and, and, and God will prosper you. And so uh, Jacob began to serve. And Jacob, you know, uh, really enjoyed it. But one day as he was working the land, he came across this beautiful woman. And her name was Rachel. And she was amazing. He fell in love with her quickly. And he went to Laban, his uncle, and he said, now I know that would make Rachel his cousin. So just, let's just go with it here and understand it's the Old Testament. Things maybe were just a little bit different uh, back then. But he went to Laban. He said, I want to marry Rachel. And, and, and Laban said, well, you can have her. She's not spoken for. She hasn't committed herself to any man, so you can have her. But you have to work seven years for me for free in the fields. Seven years in the fields so he could get married. That is a commitment of courtship like none of us have ever made. Most of us would not work seven weeks for free somewhere to marry someone. Never mind seven years. He did it. 
And after the seventh year, can you just imagine, seven years, he finally made it. It's like, oh, yes, finally I made it. I get to marry this girl, and they have the wedding, and she comes in. She's, you know, probably covered and, and has her veil and comes in, and they do the wedding and pronounce the man and wife. Veil comes up, and oh, my goodness, it is not Rachel. It is Leah, her older sister. And he is disappointed, to say the least. He's worked seven years for something he thought he was going to have, and all of a sudden, no, I got Leah. <laughs> and he's like, Laban, you deceived me. And he couldn't get out of it. The deceiver is now deceived. Doesn't that happen? Doesn't it come back around when we begin to live into a name or live into a life or live into something that God doesn't have for us? begins to turn on us. And he felt that turning in his soul. He said, Laban, come on. I want Rachel. Now, I'll keep Leah. I'll keep Leah, but, but I, you know, I'll take care of her. I know it's your daughter, but, but I, want, I want Rachel. And he said, okay, I'll give you Rachel. You can marry Rachel too. Again, this is Old Testament. Do not recommend this uh, in, in, your, in your lives. Uh, but um, so, so he said, well, you can marry Rachel too but you have to work for me another seven years. Wow. And he said, yes. And the scripture says that seven years seemed like a day. He was so in love. He was so passionate about this woman. Seven years went by. He married Rachel, and now we got all kinds of drama. We got two sisters that are married to the same man that probably are fighting and don't really like each other that much because of that. We got two brothers that are at war. There is a lot of drama going on, and it's not long before Jacob really begins to prosper, and Laban's sons don't like it because they're finding out that he's growing and things are happening for him, and he's taking over some of the land. And so there were whispers of we've got to get rid of Jacob. He's becoming too prosperous, and, and, and there's too much blessing in his life. And so all of a sudden, Jacob began to hear these whispers that Laban was going to come for him and his sons were going to come for him. And so he took off in the middle of the night. He deceived Laban again. He told him one thing and he did another. So the deceiver deceives once more. And he runs and he goes actually back to where he came from, but hiding still from his father and from Esau. And as he's running from Laban, he hears that Laban has gathered an army of men and sons and Laban's coming after him. So Laban's hot on his heels and as he's moving into this new territory, he also gets a report that Esau, his older brother, who is big and burly and strong, has got 400 men that are coming his way to find him and he's thinking, all right, this thing's going to end. I got someone coming from behind. I got someone coming from front. He has finally been put in a corner. The deceiver, the liar, the manipulator, the one who's tried to manage his own life and his own power and his own flesh with his own strength is finally in that corner. There's always a time in, I think, everybody's life where we find ourselves in a corner. Like, where do we go from here? What do we do now? And he did what so many of us do. He prayed. He said, God, I, I need to, I mean, I love his prayer. I mean, he's about to die. He's about to lose everything. Check this prayer out. Genesis 32, 9 to 12. 
It says, and then Jacob prayed. <laughs> Look at this. O God of my father Abraham, O God of my father, uh, or my father Isaac. Now, when you start name dropping great men of God in your prayer, you're looking for favor. Just reminding you, Grandpa Abraham and my father Isaac, and just so you know who I am, this is no normal person here coming to you in prayer. I've got, I've got heritage here. They said, Lord, who, who said to me, he said, Lord, who said to me, in other words, now he begins to quote a promise, like God just reminding you of what you promised. You said, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Lord, you promised that you prosper and take care of me. Now he goes into humility. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown. Your servant said, God, help me. I'm just a servant. I'm humble, but don't forget who my father is and who my grandfather is. And don't forget your promise that you said you'd prosper me. Then he goes, I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. And then he says, save me. There's that word. Save me, God. I've made a mess of my life. I have deceived, I've betrayed, I've manipulated, I've tried to manage, and God, save me. I need the work of your salvation in my life. To save me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me, and all the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted. And verse 13, and he spent the night there. So here's this prayer of desperation. But you know what? God moves us from our prayers of desperation into a deep work of his saving grace in our life. The prayer begins things, but then God begins to show up. And God wants to go deep into our soul. God is more concerned with what's going on in the inside of our lives than the outcome. There wasn't some quick answer where he dropped Esau dead and stopped, put a wall up in front of Laban so that they couldn't get them. There wasn't a quick answer. It was God saying, okay, I want to go into your soul. And look what happens next. This is amazing. Genesis 32, 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Pause. What? A man wrestled with him till daybreak? All night wrestling with a man? Who is this man? We're just going to call this guy Mystery Mayhem. That sounds like a wrestler's name because he didn't come and say, this is who I am. But mystery mayhem shows up. This, this wrestling man, maybe at first Jacob thought this is Esau, but it wasn't Esau. Maybe it's Laban or one of his sons, but it wasn't Laban or one of his sons. And so this, this wrestling man, I mean, this guy starts wrestling with him. Not talking, not discussing, not debating, but wrestling all night. Like they're sweating, they're wrestling. He's, you know, jumping off turnbuckles and drop kicking him. He's putting him in a figure four leg lock. I mean, this is a wrestling night. And look what happens. Verse 25, when the man saw, speaking of this mystery man, when the mystery man saw that he could not overpower him, he reached out, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. 
So by this time, Jacob knows he's not wrestling with any ordinary man. He is wrestling with divinity, probably Christ in the form of an angel, but nevertheless divine. Someone from heaven had showed up, and his hip was wrenched out. He knew it was divine. Just a simple touch, and all of a sudden, his hip is wrenched out. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Here's a man with gall. Here's a man with courage. He said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And in this moment in Jacob's life, there was no more deceiving. He was face to face with God. There was no trick up his sleeve. There was no manipulating this situation. He was face to face and was holding on to God all night and said, I will not let you go till you bless me. I need your blessing in my life. And the man answered him and said, what is your name? What is your name? This is a much deeper question than, hey, you know, we haven't really got acquainted. We just kind of started this fight, and I thought it'd be good to meet you. You know, I'm Mystery Mayhem, and what's your name? The core issue here was, who are you? Do you really know who you are? He didn't ask him, what have you done, or where have you been, or what kind of bad things have you been involved with? He said, who are you? Do you really know who you are? Have you ever figured out who you are. Why did God wrestle him? Why did God come down and just have this wrestling match with him? Any of you fathers ever wrestled with your, your son? I remember my youngest son, Brock, who was always more the athlete of, of the kids. All the kids were, were, you know, they played sports, but Brock really loved sports. And he was always trying to get big, and uh, he eventually uh, outgrew me as far as his, his height, and he started, I remember in his mid-teens, he started feeling his oats and feeling like he's got to that place where he could take that. And, and I remember, you know, he challenged me uh, to a wrestling match one, one night on the, in the living room on the carpet. And so we got into it. We started wrestling, and I'm telling you, the, the young man was getting strong. And I felt his weight, and it wasn't like when he was four or five, and I could just kind of flip him around. This was a match. And there were times where he wouldn't let go. But finally, you know, after about 30 minutes of just, just fighting and wrestling, I finally just said, okay, this is over. It's been fun. It's been great. But I'm going to remind him once again who's in control. And so I was still big enough and strong enough. He wasn't quite, you know, old enough to stop me. And I finally just turned him over on his back and I put his arms down and I said, okay, I win. And he looked back up at me and he said, okay, okay, dad, you win. And you know, in that moment, if he would have looked back at me and said, dad, will you bless me? He was my son even though I was wrestling with him, and even though we were wrestling hard, the answer would have been, of course, I will bless you. You're my son. So the wrestling was this, I think this wrestle of God's love, wrestling him into honesty, wrestling him into a deep work in his life where something would change. And he asked for the blessing. 
And so Jacob finally answered when he said, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. And the angel said, your name will no longer be Jacob or deceiver, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. He said, I am going to give you the blessing you need. I'm renaming you. You're getting a new name. You are no longer deceiver. You're no longer the one who manipulates. There's a change in your life that I'm pronouncing from this moment on. You are now Israel. You wrestle with God and have overcome. You wrestle with God to find your blessing. And you know what God's intention is for all of us as he works out his salvation is that we would get to that place where we would honestly wrestle with him, that it might even get messy. We begin to talk about the things that are deep in our soul and the things that we've struggled with and the things that God wants to bring his saving grace into and allow him to rename us. Because whether you know it or not, we have all taken on names. Maybe a, a, a name that you've taken on is, is hopeless, that you've just felt like you've identified again and again with being a hopeless person without hope for the future. And God wants to rename you and say, you are now full of hope. Maybe you've kind of taken on the name of an event in your life. Maybe it's divorce, or maybe it was a bad decision in, in your childhood or in your teen years, some, some event that happened and, and you've kind of held on to that name and, and you've, you've lived in the shame and the pain of that and God wants to speak a new name, forgiveness. He wants to speak a new name, redemption. A new name, restored. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe there is something in your life that has again and again come back and that addiction has brought destruction. It's brought pain into your life and your family and God's wanting to rename you and say, you are freedom, you are forgiveness, you are newness of life. If you had asked me six or seven years ago, Blaine, honestly tell me what you what name you live into in your relationship with God? Now, if I wasn't honest, which I probably wouldn't have been six or seven years ago, I would have probably said, well, I'm, a, I'm his son, you know. I'm a, I'm a Christian. But if I was honest with you seven years ago, you said, what name are you living into in your relationship with God? Here's what it would have been. Employee. That's kind of how I felt with God. I felt like I'm giving him my time. Now, I loved him, but I loved him like a boss. I appreciated him like a boss, and I felt like on some level I, I would please him, but then I wouldn't, and I would do good, and then I would do bad, and I was always managing, trying to please God and make him happy that I'd be a good employee, that I'd get a new promotion, that he'd take care of me because I have done well. And that eventually led me to crisis in my life on so many levels. And, I'm, and it wasn't a, a victim thing. I did it to myself. I allowed all of this in my life. But there were men and people and churches and pastors who began to speak into my life. And I began to discover that that's not the relationship that God wants with me. That he wanted to wrestle me down and put me on the ground and look at me and say, I love you. You are my beloved. And it took 
some deep nights of the soul, some hard, messy wrestling with God and his people to get that figured out. And I'm still figuring that out because it is a continual work of salvation that we are in. And when God begins to rename you, he begins to speak into your life, everything begins to change. God's a renaming God. He said, Abram, you're Abraham. He said, Simon, you're no longer this weak-willed man, but you are now rock. You're Peter. You're going to be a foundational apostle in this church that I'm building. He told James and John, you know what he nicknamed them? He said, you guys are the sons of thunder. Now, those are wrestling names, right? He said, you're sons of thunder. He loves to rename us, to give us a new name. And you know, the really cool ending to this story is Jacob finally walks away from that, saying, I am Israel. I've wrestled with God and overcome. I'm walking out with this blessing. But you know what? He walked out differently after his encounter with God. The Bible says he walked out with a limp. Now he's limping. It's like, you know. And when you limp, there's, there's a weakness on an area of your body you have to compensate for because it's, it's weak. So he's, he's kind of limping. And this is something that never left him. And how many know you can't hide a limp? <laughs> you know, you can't all of a sudden straighten up and just kind of, you know, a limp is a limp. And everywhere he went after that, I guarantee people asked him, what happened? What, what, what did you do? How did you get that limp? And you know what he said? He said, I went to battle with the Lord. God showed up and we wrestled through the night. And he wrestled that deception and that manipulation and that messiness in my life. He wrestled it out and he pronounced me Israel. I overcame. And I'm a new man with a new name. And it's okay to have a limp. It's okay to have a past. It's okay to give God glory for what he's done in and through you in your past to say, listen, if God did that for me, he can wrestle in your life to change you. He'll bring glory through your pain. He'll bring glory through your limp. So allow this liturgical work of God to be worked out in your life where you can begin to live into a new name and a new glory, common good, bringing blessing to your world, to your community, to your family, to your church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great blessing that we have to live this life together. Lord, that we don't have to live our faith alone, but we can live into our faith for the common good. I pray for people that are here this morning as we close, as we move into the Eucharist and celebrate the, the blood, the body, the brokenness of Christ for us. That, God, there would be newness of life for those that need it. That we'd be willing to wrestle into the deeper issues of our life to find hope and to find peace and to find and envision a new future. Speak into our hearts today. Lord, do a miracle if need be in our lives. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Brent. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.